Hello. Welcome to the Myths and History of Greece and Rome. Chapter 117, Irene and Charlemagne. So, after our little detour into the post-Roman world of Western Europe, it's now back to the Eastern Romans. It's 775 and things are stable, or at least a bit more stable than they have been. Leo III and Constantine V have managed to keep the Arabs out of what is left of a once mighty empire. Leo IV has assumed the purple, again without any rebellions. He's only 25 and has a beautiful wife and a five-year-old son who, he hopes, will grow up and succeed him. Leo was the son of Constantine V and his first wife, who was a Khazar princess, daughter of the Khazar Kagan. Leo was known throughout his life as Leo the Khazar. He was an iconoclast like his father, but was not a fanatic, and he allowed the monks to return to the monasteries. Leo could possibly have been a good leader, but there were two reasons why he wasn't. First, he suffered from a disease, we still don't know what it was, which made him quite sickly and was to kill him before he had a chance to stamp his mark on the empire. Second, he had for a wife one of the most ambitious, grasping and unpleasant women ever to marry an emperor. Leo had been betrothed to Gisela, daughter of Pepin the Short of the Franks, but the contract was broken. It's perfectly conceivable that if this marriage had gone ahead, the whole course of history might have changed, but it didn't. Instead, Leo married the daughter of a Greek nobleman. This woman, Irene of Athens, had a determination to hold power just as strong as that of Livia or Agrippina or Julia Mesa. She also had the opportunity. Her husband was probably a good man, but he was often ill, and Irene slowly began to take charge. Now, Irene was an iconoduel, she loved her icons. This wasn't too popular in the time of the iconoclast empire, but Irene wasn't going to be put off by that. Early in his reign, Leo discovered two icons in his wife's bed. He was furious. Having seen them, he carried out an investigation. Leo discovered that some of the palace officials had brought them. He subjected them to many tortures and punishments. As for his wife, he gave her a good telling off, saying, Was this what you swore to my father the emperor? Irene pretended she hadn't known the icons were there. Given that they were in her bed, this is not very likely. There was a brief uprising when Leo raised his son Constantine to the rank of joint emperor, just as his father had done for him. It was perpetrated by the new emperor's five half-brothers. They were defeated and exiled to Kherson, where they were closely guarded. But poor old Leo IV didn't have a chance to do a lot else. In 780, he led an army to face the Arabs, but became ill on the way and died of a fever before he could get home. He was 30 years old and had worn the purple for five years. His son was crowned emperor aged 10 as Constantine VI. His wife took charge. The icons were back. The icons were back big time. Pretty soon, you couldn't move for icons. Now, in the long history of Europe and the Mediterranean, there have been some great women rulers. Hatshepsut was pharaoh of Egypt for 21 years, improving trade and constructing some of the most important temples and buildings in ancient Egypt. Catherine the Great of Russia is considered to be one of the greatest of the Tsars and turned Russia into one of Europe's most important countries. Queen Elizabeth I of England reigned for 44 glorious and successful years of exploration and military victories. Irene, though, was not in this class. She was one of the worst rulers the empire had had for many years. Her time as regent for her son and then sole ruler was one of almost continuous disaster. First, she had to deal with the family. 
Constantine Capronimus had more than one son, but Leo IV was the only one who was any use, and the only one the great iconoclast had spent any time on. Leo's five incompetent brothers were completely unfit to be emperors, despite their previous attempt to seize the throne, but Irene had to make sure they wouldn't be used by anyone else in a rebellion. There wasn't any further revolt, but Irene needed to get rid of the brothers, so she made one up. The five innocent brothers were forced to become priests in order to punish them for something they didn't do. Brothers of Leo gone, it was now time to get rid of important iconoclasts. Most of the best army officers were loyal to the old emperor and were staunchly in favour of iconoclasm, so Irene purged them. Oh dear, we've seen this happen before, haven't we? Emperor isn't happy with generals, emperor fires or executes generals, empire loses territory, cash or both. And it was no different this time. Most of the eastern generals were dismissed and the Arabs took advantage. Irene appointed a supporter of hers, a man called Storakius, as Logothete of the Dromos, an important military job. A small victory was gained when Michael Laconodracon, one of Constantine V's generals, foiled an Arab attack on the eastern frontiers. But unfortunately this Strategos of the Bucellarii Tatsatis defected to the Arabs out of dislike for Storakios. This defection ruined a plan to encircle the caliph's son Harun al-Rashid and a huge Arab army. Storakios was sent to negotiate with the Arabs when Harun asked for peace negotiations, but it was a trick. The negotiators were seized, the Bukalarion troops joined Tatsartes in defecting, and Irene had to agree to pay a huge annual tribute of about 90,000 gold dinars to the Arabs for a three-year truce. She also had to give them 10,000 silk garments and provide them with guides, provisions and cash for the journey home. The only place where Irene had any military success was Greece, where the Slavs were defeated. But Irene was from Greece, so we might expect that she'd do okay there. By now, Irene felt more confident, and she patched up relations with the Pope, and called a huge ecumenical council in Nicaea. Unlike Constantine V, she invited bishops from all over. There were representatives from all five patriarchates, Rome, Constantinople, Antioch, Jerusalem and Alexandria. Not surprisingly, the iconoclasts were declared heretics and the icons were officially back. The final agreement was signed by the emperor. Constantine VI was now 17 and could be expected to start ruling by himself. And this, of course, is where the trouble started. Many previous emperors have had ambitious mothers, but most of these mothers loved their sons and at least had some interest in what was best for them. Irene didn't seem to have any of these feelings at all. She was only interested in power for herself. The emperor's mother issued a decree saying she was actually the most important emperor and that Constantine VI was less so. Coins were soon issued with pictures of Irene larger than pictures of her son. This was too much for the army. Even with most of the important generals fired, there were still enough old supporters of Constantine V and they were not going to stand for this woman being in charge. A conspiracy was formed. Irene was to be banished to Sicily and Constantine was to rule alone. Irene's spies heard about it though and amazingly she reacted by having her poor son chucked into prison. What a lovely mummy to have. Irene demanded the army swear loyalty to her and her alone. The army completely, totally and absolutely refused. Constantine was released and declared sole ruler and Irene was banished to her personal palace and not allowed to leave. Constantine VI now had everything in place. 
He had the support of the army and was popular with the people. He had it all. So what did he do with it? He threw it all away. Constantine was weak and probably a bit thick. It was soon clear that he always believed the last thing he was told and always took the last piece of advice he was given, even if it was completely different from the advice he had been given a few minutes before. He made a humiliating peace with Harun al-Rashid and then led his troops into battle against the Bulgars. He had no idea how to lead an army and as soon as it looked like there might be some fighting, he ran away. Then he did the one thing which was guaranteed to annoy virtually everyone. He recalled his mother from her palace and let her have some power back. What an idiot. Mummy dear had had him flung into a dungeon and now he was inviting her back. This was probably not going to end well. Having Irene back was the last straw for the old iconoclasts and they plotted to declare Nicephorus, one of Leo IV's useless brothers, emperor. The plotters of the late 8th century seemed incapable of keeping secrets because this plot, like the others, was discovered. Constantine IV had Nicephorus blinded and just to make sure had his other four uncles' tongues cut out. So Constantine VI was not only thick, weak and not able to stand up to his mother, he was also a nasty piece of work. Most of his support was gone. When he divorced his wife so he could marry someone else, all of his support was gone. And of course, this led to Constantine VI being overthrown by his opponents, didn't it? Amazingly, no it didn't. But he was overthrown by mummy. In 797, a party of soldiers jumped on him and brought him back to the palace. On the 13th of August, he was blinded and eventually died of his injuries, although it's not certain when. Constantine VI was just 26 years old and had been emperor for 17 years. Irene was now in charge. She was the first woman to be Basileus. And this is where the East and West come into contact with each other once more. As we know, Pepin the Short died in 768 and his two sons acceded to the throne of the Franks. Carloman died in 771 and his brother, Charles I, known as Charlemagne, became sole ruler. Charlemagne had been to visit the Pope in Rome, assuring him that the support of the Franks would be unceasing and fierce. A later Pope, Leo III, was badly treated by the Roman aristocracy, who accused him of being drunk and other foul deeds, and tried to put his eyes out and tear out his tongue. Leo escaped, and in 799 fled to Charlemagne and asked him for help. Charlemagne agreed to travel to Rome, doing so in November 800, and holding a council on the 1st of December. On the 23rd of December, Leo swore an oath saying he was innocent. The priests and bishops looked up at Charlemagne and decided he looked big and scary and they'd better not upset him, so they found Leo III not guilty. On Christmas Day 800 AD, when Charlemagne knelt at the altar to pray, the Pope crowned him Imperator Romanorum, Emperor of the Romans. Charlemagne was shocked and was not too keen, but to many other people it seemed like a good idea. Charlemagne thus became the first Holy Roman Emperor. The Pope had no authority to crown a Western Emperor, only the Emperor in Constantinople had the right to do that, but the Pope did it anyway. In Constantinople there was a reaction of horror. OK, the Empire had lost a lot of territory, but as far as they were concerned there could only be one Emperor and one leader of the Christian peoples. They still pretended the Empire was like it used to be, and eventually they would regain all of the lost territory. Of course this was never going to happen, and anyway in the West they considered there was no emperor in Constantinople, 
they didn't accept that a woman could be in charge. Charlemagne soon got used to the idea of being Holy Roman Emperor, but decided he wanted to go one step further. He wanted to be Emperor of all of the Romans. And how was he going to achieve this? Easy. He sent a note to Irene asking for her hand in marriage. If he married the Empress, then he would be the ruler of the Empire. Charlemagne thought about it and decided he really quite fancied the idea. In the short time since she had deposed her son, Irene had managed to become even less popular. The people didn't like her much anyway, but killing her son had caused her to be hated by much of the population. She tried to buy the love of the people by reducing taxes. Eventually it's said that she took to riding through the city on a golden chariot, pulled by beautiful white horses and throwing gold coins to the people. Not surprisingly, the people just thought she was an idiot for wasting all that money, especially as she had had to increase the payments to the Arabs to keep the peace. In 802, the note from Charlemagne was received. Of course it was ridiculous. The Empress, the Basileus of the Empire, was not going to marry a barbarian king who couldn't read. So, he was calling himself the Holy Roman Emperor. So what? He could call himself Lord, God and Master of all of everything if he wanted. It didn't make him a Roman Emperor. Everyone in the Empire thought the whole thing was crazy and quite insulting. Everyone, that is, except one person. Amazingly, Irene seemed to be taking the idea seriously. It was the last straw. The unpopular female Basileus had gone one step too far, and at last a plot succeeded. In 802, the patricians of Constantinople overthrew the Empress and forced her into exile on the island of Lesbos. She was made to work for a living, which clearly didn't suit her, as she died less than a year later. She was only 51 and had reigned for five years although she was actually in power a lot longer than that, while her son was the actual emperor. The dynasty of Leo III was at an end, and the patricians chose as emperor a man called Nicephorus, who was Logothete of the treasury, the official in charge of the imperial money. In 803, just as Nicephorus's reign was getting going, there was a brief revolt. While the rebellion was gathering steam, four of the main conspirators went to see a hermit, who lived at Philomelion, near Antioch. It was said that this man could see into the future. These four men were known as Michael the Amorian, Bardanes Turkos, Thomas the Slav and Leo the Armenian. One of them, the leader of the rebels, nervously asked the hermit if his revolt would be successful and if he would become emperor. He waited with trepidation for the reply. The hermit fixed him with a piercing gaze and spoke. No, he said, there is no hope for you. Then he turned to the others. But as for the three of you, he said, two of you will wear the imperial crown and the other will come very close. Well, I'm afraid I'm going to have to leave you there on that cliffhanger. Will the hermit's prediction come true? And if so, which two of the four men will eventually wear the purple? Next time, we'll go some way towards finding out. If you like the podcast then please go to www.mythandhistory.podbean.com. There you will find a donations button. The podcast is and will always remain free, but any donations which you can make are much appreciated. If you want to leave feedback or just ask a question, then you can contact me by email mythandhistory at gmail.com or friend me on Facebook, Paul Vincent Myth and History. So, have a great couple of weeks and I'll speak to you next time.